And uh, one of the reasons I like the Thanksgiving holiday is that here in the U.S. is for a day or two, most of us take some time out to, to reflect on what we're thankful for. Hopefully you got to do that as well. And, and it's kind of funny, social sites like Facebook, they, they experience a dramatic one-day redemptive transformation where everyone overflows the posts about what we're all grateful for. But, but we forget often the great freedoms, the great privileges we have in Jesus. We forget the lavish provision that most of us have very quickly, don't we? I know I do. I, I can forget so quickly just what God has done, what He's provided for us, how He's made us free. And, and, and the very next day after we celebrate in the U.S. this Thanksgiving holiday, the very next day, what do we have? A celebration of shopping and what we don't have. And uh, going out to look for um, what we, we don't have and what we want to get. Uh, I'm not against sales. I'm not against making wise purchases. I'm not against retailers or purchasing gifts for other people. And in fact, um, thank you to those who are employed in retailing. Um, but this time of year, it's very easy for us to get caught up in becoming more aware of what we don't have, isn't it? Becoming more aware of what, uh, what we can't afford or what we want, and we can begin to lose sight of what we do have and what's most important. And it's passages like this in Hebrews that helps us, helps us remember what we have, to not become discontent, to not lose our focus, and to focus instead on what's meant to make us truly joyful. Remember when I was young, I don't know if your parents ever did this to you, but I hated to eat peas. Um, I really, I hated peas. I really, I don't, I'll eat them now. I'm grateful they're a gift from God, but I really don't like them. I'll only eat them at force. If I go to your house, I'll eat them. I won't complain, but I hate them. I hate peas. And when I was a kid, I wouldn't like to eat my peas. We had this little shelf under the table. I would, I would hide my peas and I would stick them up there. My, my parents would catch me doing that and say, what are you doing? They're starving kids in Africa. I'm like, um, so how does that relate to my peas? I don't get it. And um, they, they, were, they would try to remind me of starving orphans in some faraway country and so that I should be grateful for even the handful of peas that I had to eat. And they were right, of course, but I didn't, I didn't really understand it. I didn't really get it. Now that I'm older, I've begun to understand what they're trying to get me to see. They were trying to get me to see what I really had, to be grateful for the privileges, the freedoms, the provisions that God had given to us practically. That's not just the case for us practically, it's the case for us spiritually too, isn't it? In, in the book of Hebrews, it's written to a people who were tempted to forget what they had in Jesus. They were tempted to forget the lavish provisions that they had, the freedoms that they had, the benefits that they had in Christ. And they were tempted to go back to the Old Covenant. They were tempted to go back to the, the Old Testament priesthood to trust in those trappings because they met in a house maybe or down by the river and they didn't have this ornate temple to go to and it didn't seem impressive, they didn't have the liturgy. You know, for us, we don't, we don't have a, an ornate church building. It's amazing. We all come out to the Marriott every Sunday. Sometimes you can be tempted to think, you know what, maybe I want to go back to a more, something more tradition. I want to trust in, in those trappings, those things. The people in the book of Hebrews need to be reminded just who Jesus was. Just what a great salvation they had. They needed to be focused on what was most important, what was true, and not be satisfied with a false religion that would fade away. For us, we may not be in that boat, but we often are in a place where we're tempted to trust in a false religion of our own merits, our own deeds, our own works, what we have, what we've attained, our reputation. We're tempted to trust in those things, and that's why we need the book of Hebrews as well. 
See, the author of Hebrews, he's been laying out really systematically through the whole book an explanation of who Jesus is. The whole book of Hebrews, it's, it's all about Jesus. We picked it because we want to focus on being disciples of Jesus. And if you don't know who Jesus is, it's hard to follow him. It's hard to know him. It's, it's hard to be a disciple if you don't know who he is. So the book of Hebrews, it's an explanation of who Jesus is and why he's better than any alternative. He's been explaining what hope we have in Jesus, and that's the theme of our whole series. Seeing Jesus gives us hope in His promises. We need to remember why we can have hope in Jesus. In the first part of chapter 7, last week, we, we focused on the fact that Jesus was a better priest, a priest of an entirely different order. An order that had nothing to do with the law, that in fact superseded, preceded the law. We learned that the priesthood of Jesus, it not only, it not only supersedes the law, it it replaces the entire law. It replaces the whole way of coming to God so that now we come to God through Jesus alone and through no other means. We learned that Jesus is a better high priest because amazingly, He, the King of all creation, He intercedes for you and me. He prays for each of us in our time of need. When you're struggling, when you're having a hard time, when it's difficult for you, you can remember we have a better high priest. Why is He better? Because He's praying for you. He's praying for me. It's, it's amazing enough that He died for us, took our sins. It's amazing enough that He's made a way for us to come into God's presence. But then it's even more incredible that He's thinking about your situation, your weakness, your need. And He's praying for you. Just like He prayed for Peter. He said, Peter, I prayed for you that the devil wanted to sift you like wheat. And I prayed for you that you, your faith would remain strong. But after you repent... I want you to encourage the brothers. And he prays for us in a similar way. In our passage this morning, the author of Hebrews, he's going to give us three more reasons why Jesus is a superior high priest. He's continuing his theme of why Jesus is the superior high priest. Why Jesus is the only and better way that we can come before God. Three more reasons to trust in him, to be grateful for who he is and what we have in him. The main idea that we're going to look at from the text today, it's... It's that Jesus is better because of who He is, because of where He is, and because of what He brings. Jesus is better because of who He is, because of where He is, and what He brings. This morning, before we read God's Word, let's, let's go to the author. It's a good place to go when you want to understand something better. Let's go to the author to ask Him to help us understand what He's written. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank you for your reminders in Scripture, your continual reminders of who Jesus is so that we can see just who it is that we've been given and how great a high priest that we have so that our hope and our confidence would not be in anything else, not in ourselves, not in any system, not in any merit, but our hope would be in Jesus. Lord, we need you. We're weak, we're frail, we forget so quickly, just like the people of Israel, they were led out of the wilderness and they immediately forgot how great you are. God, we can just one day go from seeing how great you are and reveling in you to the very next, being doubting, weak, wavering. God, we need you. Father, I pray that we would see you more clearly. Jesus, I pray that we would see the hope that we have in you, that you would encourage us this morning, and that we'll be, we would be astounded by the truths of, of who you are, where you are, and what you bring us. 
We pray these things in your name. I pray that you would strengthen me to speak and strengthen all those here who are tired from a long weekend to be able to listen and, and receive from you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, look down in your Bibles or up on the screen in Hebrews 7. We're going to read verses 26 to 28. This is God's Word. For it was fitting, indeed fitting, that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. If you were appointed to pick the best candidate for the ambassador to the United Nations on behalf of our country, it would be fitting. It would be fitting to have somebody represent your country who wasn't an open scoundrel, wouldn't it? You, you wouldn't want to pick somebody who was knowingly had a bad reputation, who knowingly was a scoundrel and did bad things. You look for somebody probably who had impeccable character, if that's possible, and an ambassador. You would want somebody who could represent your country's values and what you believed. Well, even more so, if you put yourself back in the shoes of those who over 2,000 years ago would have been responsible for picking a high priest prior to Jesus, maybe even dial it back 500 years before that. If you were told to choose a high priest of the Old Covenant, there would be definite regulations and rules about the kind of high priest you would choose. You would want to choose somebody who was morally upright. You would want to choose somebody who wasn't openly sinful. You would want to choose somebody who demonstrated the utmost integrity in all that he did. And why would you want to do that? Because this was your representative, not before the United Nations, but this was your representative before God. You see... This person would stand in your stead and either faithfully or unfaithfully represent you before the Most High God. And, and how he did his job would directly relate to how your life went. <laughs> whether you were blessed as a people or cursed. Whether you received forgiveness and atonement for sins that year or whether God did not accept the high priest's sacrifice you would have a vested interest in wanting to make sure this was a man of integrity. And then, you couldn't be absolutely sure because no one's perfect and you would hope that he'd be accepted by God to atone for the sins of the people once a year or else your sacrifice might not be accepted. And even if you did just pick the right man, you had to hope that he stayed pure. He didn't become proud or arrogant, didn't let the position go to his head. But even then, whoever you did pick, even if he was good, or mostly good, he was going to die. So you had to go through the whole process all over again. You could never be sure. You could never trust. And, and the fact is, is that the sacrifice of atonement was only good for the year. And then, then you just hoped that that year, your sacrifice was accepted. And, and what the point of this passage is telling us is that Jesus is not like that. We can have hope in him as a better high priest because he isn't imperfect. We don't have to wonder. We don't have to question, is he good enough to stand in our stead to represent us before God? No, he is completely able, completely good. And it says that he doesn't do it every year. He did it once for all. 
And he's been made perfect forever. And the first point we're going to look at is that Jesus is better. Why is he better? He's better because of his perfect character. Jesus is better because of his perfect character. The text says that it was, it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. Well, why was it fitting? What does that mean it was fitting that we should have such a high priest? Well, if we're truly to be saved to the uttermost, as verse 25 of chapter 7 tells us, it requires a high priest who is fit to save us completely. You see, the problem with the Old Testament was no high priest was ever fit to save us completely. No amount of effort, no amount of works, no amount of animal sacrifices, no amount of legalism and sacrificial systems, no amount of ceremonial washings and dressing up, none of that could make mankind pure, could remove the stains of mankind and only a perfect high priest is fit to meet all of our needs and save us. And if we're truly to receive help, we need to be helped by somebody who has overcome all sin. So that's what it means when it says that it's fitting that he was holy and innocent and unstained. See, the high priests of old, they were not unstained and innocent. They really couldn't help those in need. But we have a high priest who is better. He's better because he's holy. His whole life was completely pure in every way. He was pleasing to God in his purity. He was completely blameless. He was free from any and all manner of guilt. He was completely innocent. He was untouched by any moral imperfection, any defect in character. I can't even fathom that. Can you? And why is it fitting? It's fitting because we needed, we needed this kind of perfect, pure, holy, unstained priest to stand in our place, to undo what all of humanity had done before Christ and after Christ. We needed, we needed someone to be good enough to be accepted by God as a perfect sacrifice. And Jesus is better than anything else, than any other sacrifice, than anything we do, than anything that the priests of old did. Because he was perfect in character. And now it says that he's, he's gone into heavens. He's, what does it mean when he says he's separated from us? That means he's, he, he's distant from us? No, what it means is that he's in the heavens. Because that's the most fitting place for his ministry in the presence of God. And if we want help from somebody stronger than us, we need an exalted helper. So that's what it means. He's fitting that he would have direct access to all the power of God. Isn't that cool? That he, he's in heaven now. It's fitting that he's separated from us because he has direct communion with God that he mediates to us. He, he enables us to receive God's unmerited favor. He enables us to receive God's help in time of need, his mercy, his strength. He's the only one who can stand in God's holy presence on his own merit and he stands there and says, I'm standing here on behalf of all of my people. And God credits that perfect merit to us. He's better. <laughs> That's an understatement. He's better because he's perfect in character. The priests of the political priesthood, they couldn't finally secure redemption, but the sacrifice that Jesus offered of himself, you know, in, in the Old Testament, they would look for this, this spotless lamb on the outside. Well, no lamb was truly spotless because every lamb had some genetic defect somewhere, but they looked spotless enough. They were white on the outside. But Jesus was truly and completely spotless, without defect. And, and, and it wasn't an animal that was offered up. He became the lamb for us. 
In his sacrifice, it was definitive. It was final because what it says is he, he sacrificed once and for all. What that means is no other sacrifice is needed. Why is that good news for us? It's good news for us because we don't have to earn God's favor after you become a Christian. No other sacrifice is needed. No other merit is needed. You don't have to do penance. You don't have to pray the rosary. You don't have to uh, do whatever to earn his favor. No other sacrifice is needed. You don't have to feel bad enough to be forgiven. You don't have to beat yourself over the head when you sin. No other sacrifice is needed. He's a sacrifice to end all their sacrifices because with His sacrifice, He's forever secured the redemption of those who place their faith in Him. In chapters 9 and 10, we're going to unpack the sacrifice of Jesus more. We're not going to spend more time on it this morning. We're going to spend more time on it later. But the point of verses 26 and 27 here is to show that Jesus is a superior high priest because He was perfectly sinless. Now look down at verse 28. It tells us the priests of old were appointed even in their weakness, but Jesus was not appointed in any weakness. He was appointed as the ultimately powerful Lord of all. Why is that important? It means that He's strong to save. Do you ever feel like you're beyond God's help? You're beyond the ability of God to save you? Like you're too bad? We don't have a weak high priest. We have a strong high priest who's able to save you to the uttermost. That's why Jesus is better. Why does it matter that God was perfect in character, that Jesus was perfect in character? Why? Well, do you ever feel like God doesn't accept you? Do you ever feel that way? I feel that way sometimes. I feel like I'm unworthy. you ever feel unworthy? <laughs> we can trust because of His perfect character that His sacrifice was completely acceptable to God on our behalf. That's why it matters. We don't ever need to wonder if God's going to accept us if we're trusting in Jesus as our Savior. He doesn't accept us because of us. That's very good news. Jesus is better. He accepts us because He's accepted the perfect character of Jesus as the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. And then... And then He treats us as if we've done all those perfect things. That's why it's important. Because there'd be no way for us to stand before God. Even if all our sins were removed when we still continued to sin, if God didn't see us as righteous, we, we couldn't come into His presence with confidence. But yet he, he sees us as righteous because of Jesus' perfect character. You ever feel like God may not accept you tomorrow if you fail? There's good news. He's been made perfect forever. He'll never fail us. His sacrifice will always be perfect and always completely sufficient. That's what it means when it says once and for all. His mercies are new every morning. When you wake up tomorrow and you feel like a loser, you may be in your own, in your own self. But we have one who's not weak, who's strong to save, who has a perfect character that's been credited to us and it's meant to give us great hope. Let us continue to look to Him. And hope. Look down in your Bibles and, or up on the screen here on, verse eight, on chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. Let's continue to read God's Word together. It says, Hebrews 8, 1, Now the point in what we are saying is this, We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent, 
that the Lord has set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it's necessary for this high priest to offer also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. What in the world is he saying here? What he's saying is that Jesus is better because he serves in the true temple and no mere shadow. Jesus is better because he serves in the true tent. The true place where God's presence dwells. He serves in the true tent. The true place where, where God's presence is fully manifest. Jesus is better because he serves there. He doesn't serve in the shadows. He doesn't serve in some mere copy. And in fact, this copy and the shadow has been done away with. And then verse 1, look down in your Bibles. It says that he's, we have a better high priest. Why? He sat down. Does that mean that he stopped doing things? No. This is, this is to show us that no, no other priest could sit down. You know why? Because their job was never finished. Year after year, the high priest, when they go into the Holy Holies, there's no seat in there that they were allowed to sit on. There was a mercy seat that was symbolic, but that they would go and approach to receive mercy once a year, but they could not sit. And in fact, if they stopped moving, they'd be drug out. They had little bells around the bottom of their robes that people would know if they were still moving around. The high priest could never sit down. His job was never over. But Jesus did something none of them had ever done. He goes into God's presence and he stays there. He sits down. His work is finished. It's completed. That's meant to give us hope. He sat down. There's no other work to do. Now, he still intercedes for us. He's still actively at work in our lives, conforming us into his image. But the work of redemption, of freeing us from the shackles of sin, has already been done. He's already broken the power that sin held over us. You may not feel like it. But the fact that he sat down means that it's done. He doesn't need to be moving around, shedding any more blood, doing anything else. He's done it all. When he died on the cross, what did he say? It is finished. He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God in majesty. You know, when the, the priests of old that came into the, that that second area, that, that holy of holies. It was continually year after year and there's this replica of these, these cherubim that were over this, this symbolic seat and that was sitting on top of this ark. And that ark was a replica in, that housed in some sense the presence of God in a unique way. Jesus doesn't serve at some, some mere copy, some mere shadow, some replica. He doesn't serve where you have this image of angels. No, he serves where angels cover their eyes and cover their feet because they can't look on the holiness of God. And Jesus serves in God's holy presence directly. It's no mere shadow, no mere copy. He has access to unlimited grace. Not once a year grace, but an unending grace. He has access to unlimited mercy. Unlimited forgiveness because he has unlimited access to the presence of God. And verse 2 tells us he's a minister in the true temple. 
What the author is saying is that this tent, this tabernacle in the Old Testament, it wasn't the true tent. It wasn't the true place where God was fully. It was a shadow of His presence. And it was made to, to meant us to, made so that we would long for the presence of God. I used to work for a, a company called Electronic Arts. They, were, they made computer games and games for those PS3s and things like that. And they made a bunch of realistic-looking games that were... A lot of them were based on capturing the real motion of the of the talent, the sports personalities that they depicted. And one of those games that they used to make, and I know they still make it, it was called Tiger Woods Golf. Because Tiger Woods at that time was the best golfer in the world, or at least one of the top golfers in the world. And so he came into our studios, and they put little dots all over him, and they captured his motion. And, and it was a very realistic game. It depicted, depicted realistically what he looked like and how he played. And imagine now if... You had never heard of the game of golf, and you never played the game of golf. You'd never seen the game of golf on TV. Some people don't call it a game, but anyway. Um, if you'd never seen golf, never heard of golf, and I told you, hey, I have this great thing, it's called golf, and here it is, it's Tiger Woods Golf, and I gave them the video game, and you played the video game, never having heard of or played golf before in your life, never having seen it, you played the video game, you got really good at it. You got excellent at this game. You were a master and you could make Tiger Woods backswing just perfect and he would hit 350-yard drives. That's a dream I will never attain in real life, by the way. But if you became excellent in that game, and then I took you and I took you to, I don't know, uh, Pebble Creek Golf Course. And I said, now, <laughs> I, I fooled you. I told you that was golf. This is golf. And I gave you a set of clubs and put it in your hands. and It would dramatically change your view of golf. It would dramatically change how you looked at the whole game. It would change everything. It, you were playing with a copy. You were, you were dealing with a copy before. But now that you had the real thing, everything about it had changed. It would change your view of golf. And you would see the real thing was much better than the copy. And, and has the potential, at least, to be so much more enjoyable. In Tiger Woods Golf, the, the courses, the scenery, they look like the real thing. But the game isn't the real thing. It's just a copy. It's a shadow of reality. The, the author of Hebrews, in a similar way, is trying to get them to see, look, this was a good thing. It was enjoyable and had, some, it had benefits. But you know what? It's being done away with. It was only a shadow of reality. And, and don't return to trusting in putting your confidence in the shadow of the greater reality because Jesus serves in the true reality. He serves in the true tent of God's presence where God dwells in all His fullness. For us, we can trust in so many other things. I don't know about you, but I'm tempted to trust in so many other shadows and copies of the real thing. Some people can, can trust in, in worship nature. But it's only a shadow of God's beauty. Some people worship other people or pleasure. But those things are only a shadow of the pleasures we're meant to find in God. Some worship fitness, but this is only a shadow of the new bodies that we're going to possess and our earthly limitations that are they're made for us to hope in heaven, to not, not hope in here. Some worship earthly wealth, but that's only a shadow of the riches we have in God. Even, even our earthly homes are meant to be a shadow and a copy of the fact that if you are in Christ, He said, My Father's prepared many mansions for you. It's only a shadow and a copy of the real thing. 
What this text is saying is that we shouldn't hope in the shadows. We shouldn't hope in the copies of the real thing. We're made to hope in Jesus because He's a minister in God's very presence where there's no shadows but the full reality of His all-sufficient majesty. Isn't that good news? There's no shadows there. There's no mere copies there. There's nothing unfulfilling. There's nothing that won't satisfy us in God's presence because God Himself is the one who is meant to satisfy all our longings, all our cravings. He's the only one worthy of worship and that's where we need to go through Jesus. We need to enter into His presence now. And it says that Jesus serves in the heavenly temple in the direct presence of God. The Old Testament priests, they only served in a small part of the presence of God, a very small section. They didn't never see God or speak with Him directly face to face. But Jesus, it says, sits at the right hand of the throne of majesty. Levitical priests would offer sacrifices that addressed sin, but they didn't ever fully atone for sin. Jesus' perfect sacrifice is fully atoned for sins. They offered up dumb animals that didn't know what they were doing. Jesus offered up Himself with full knowledge of what He was doing for you, for me. He knew what He was doing when He died for us. He had something to offer, but a more perfect, a better sacrifice to offer. Not like those priests of old. In this entire system of, of offerings and in the tent, in the whole old covenant, it was but a shadow of the real thing to come. And we can have communion and fellowship with God. It was patterned after the real thing in the way that a miniature is patterned after the real thing. It's a, it's a dim picture of reality. I, I like Impressionist paintings, but if you look at an Impressionist painting, a Monet maybe by the seashore, and you see beautiful sailboats in the ocean and the seashore and people in colorful dress... It's not the same thing. It doesn't really capture the beauty of the, the ocean. It doesn't capture the sand or the sky or the smells of the sea air or, or the warmth of the sun. And in the same way, what it's saying is that don't be satisfied with those other things. that They have their own merits. and Be satisfied coming into the presence of God through the sun. Feel the warmth of the Father. Experience His grace, His benefits firsthand through Jesus. Jesus is better because he's, of who He is and where He serves. And the last point we're going to look at is found in verses 6-13. through 13. Let's read God's Word together. This is God's Word. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant He mediates is better. Since it's enacted on better promises, where the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For He finds fault with them when He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Jacob, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in My covenant. So I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Here's the good news for us, church. This is the covenant promises that we have. God's Word says, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. They shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful. Oh, that's good news. 
says, For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And the third point that we're looking at this morning is that Jesus is better because he's a mediator. Jesus is better because he mediates a better covenant. Jesus is better because he mediates a better covenant. What is this better covenant that we should be so excited about? Thinking about a covenant, it's a binding agreement. It provides an established basis for interaction between its parties. The previous agreement that God made with man, it allowed for man to have some interaction, limited interaction with God. And it, it allowed, the old covenant allowed for God's presence to be amongst his people in a limited way. Based on the old Levitical priesthood and sacrificial system. Here's the problem though. What was the fault with that? The people never kept their side of the covenant. And that's our problem too. We can't ever keep our side of the covenant. And, and, and the old covenant was meant to point us to the fact that we need something better. Because all of mankind for thousands of years could never keep their end of the bargain. From Adam on who was perfect. He had every chance to obey. And he couldn't. He couldn't keep his part of the agreement. Just one thing, don't eat of the fruit. And then after that, God makes all of humanity new, with, wipes out everybody in the flood. And, and yet, just one generation later, no, they couldn't, they couldn't keep their in the bargain. And all throughout history, all throughout the Old Testament, it's meant to point us to the fact that we need some better hope. We need a better hope than ourselves. We need a better hope than our abilities. We need a better hope than any system that we can create. We need a better covenant, a better agreement. Because we need an agreement that doesn't rely on us. And that's the good news for us this morning. It doesn't rely on us. You will fail. I will fail. We all fail. But here's the good news. We have a better covenant that doesn't depend upon our performance. And it isn't hindered by our failures. Hebrews tells us that this agreement that we have, it's enacted on better promises. So what are these better promises? These better promises that we who enter into the covenant with God through Jesus have, it tells us we have a new heart for God. You see, the problem with the old covenant was they didn't have a new heart. Now, in some way, they were able to relate to God, and God in some way gave them His Spirit in a portion, but not fully. They, they, they didn't have a new heart. And so they were commanded to try to remember the Scriptures, to bind them on their, their foreheads and and wherever they went. They had to make great efforts and they, and they continued to fail. We have a better covenant. Why? Because He's given us a new heart for God. You may not feel like you have a new heart for God, but if, you, if, if you've been made born again, here's our hope. No matter how crummy you feel, you know you can have confidence that God's given you a new heart. Here's the other better promise. We can have knowledge of God personally experienced. And the other better promise is complete forgiveness of sins. The first fault in the Old Covenant wasn't with God's part. He kept it perfectly. But they, humans could never keep, never keep their, their part of the bargain. Fault lie with the people of God. And the author of Hebrews, he's quoting here in this verse, actually the longest quote of the Old Testament in the New Testament. And it's Jeremiah 31, 31-34. And he's trying to show us that God's always planned. 500 years before, God always planned a new covenant. 
The old covenant was designed to be insufficient, to point to the need for a different kind of agreement, not based on the sacrifices of animals, not based on performance, not based on a perfect sacrifice, based only on the perfect sacrifice of a perfect man. This new covenant, verse 8 tells us, is initiated by God. Look down at verse 8. It says, God says, I will establish. Who does it? Who initiates? God initiates. He will establish. Look at verse 10. It says, I will make. Does it depend upon you and me? No. I will establish. Verse 10 says, I will make. I will put. I will write. I will be their God. Here's our hope. We have a better covenant because it depends on God and not us. God is mighty to save. God's able. We're not. We don't depend upon and trust on ourselves. He establishes. He makes. He puts. He writes. He will be our God. This new covenant is all about God's work to bring a people to Himself through His own means. That's a better covenant, isn't it? Mankind couldn't do it, but God would send His very own Son to keep every part of the covenant as fully man and yet still fully God. You ever feel like you're too weak to follow God or obey Him? I feel like that all the time. You can trust that God will make you able. Why? Because, because it's based on Him. It says, I will make. I will write. I will give. I will establish. I'll give you a new heart. I'll write my laws on your heart. In fact, I'll, I'll, I'll make it so you can know me. I'll make you alive in me. I'll establish my covenant. No one else is going to break this because I choose you. You didn't choose me. That's why our salvation is secure. Verse 9 Else is the fault was found in the old covenant. People didn't continue in God's covenant with them. I, I'm so aware how I fail all the time. Here's what we're meant to, to do in response to these verses. Stop. Stop looking at your own weakness. Stop looking at your ability. It didn't save you to begin with. You didn't make yourself alive. You didn't give yourself a new heart. You didn't transform yourself. You didn't establish this covenant. This is all of God. Stop looking at our own weaknesses. Start looking at our covenant-making. Almighty God, He says He will do it. God took the old covenant people out by the hand. He led them strongly and compassionately out of slavery. And But in the first generation, this is crazy, the first generation of the people, what did they do? They forgot. They witnessed His great deliverance. They they saw His mighty works. They ate the manna that God fed them with. They drank the water that God made flow from the rock. They were protected on every side. They were given victory over all their enemies. And then the same generation couldn't keep the covenant. You and I can't either. And don't think you can. As Hebrews 2 told us, Now, Jesus has taken hold of us to help us and lead us out of slavery finally and completely. He gives us a new covenant in His own blood. That's what we're celebrating this morning as we took communion. We have a new covenant. It's in His blood, not ours. Thanks be to God that His blood was the perfect substitute for us. So in Jeremiah, God had prophesied over 500 years early He'd make a new covenant. He'd give them a new mind to be able to understand and follow His laws. Instead of being written on tablets of stone, He says He writes the, His laws on our hearts. <laughs> so we can actually desire to obey Him. That's good. If you have any desire to obey God, that's, that, that's, that's a sign that He's giving you a new heart. Take hope in that, not in yourself. And 
where you're aware of your lack of desires, lack of abilities. Be more aware of that God's at work in me. He will do, He will make, He will write, He will hold me. God's the one who writes His law in our hearts and minds, enables us to live lives that are pleasing to Him through His enabling. And it's this giving of a new heart that God does. It actually enables us to do His will. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, here's the good news of this better covenant. He says, Therefore, if anyone... It doesn't matter what background you come from, what ethnicity you come from, what social status you come from, how rich, how poor, how weak, how smart, how dumb you are. If anyone is in who... In Christ, He's a new creation. That's good news. It says, The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That's our hope. The promise of a new heart that actually wants to do God's will and a new mind that's able to do God's will is truly a better promise, isn't it? The new covenant's not about externals. It's about knowing God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit personally. No other religion can say that about their God. God's made a new covenant with us and we can know Him personally. A follower of Buddha doesn't and can't say that he, he knows Buddha personally. Buddha died. A follower of Muhammad can't say he knows Muhammad personally. A follower of Joseph Smith can't say he knows Joseph Smith personally. A follower of any other religion cannot say they have a personal relationship with the founder of their false religion. But God says He wants to know us personally and He enables us to do that in our hearts and minds and our thoughts and desires. He gives us a new heart. He gives us His own Spirit inside us to help us, to whisper to us, to counsel us, to comfort us. And He enables us to confidently approach the throne of grace through our better mediator. This knowing God is not limited to a special cast of people. It's not based on your lineage or where you come from or how smart you are or aren't or your abilities or your inabilities and the ability to know God is equally available to all who repent and believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. Verse 12 tells us. Look, look at verse 12. He says, For I will be merciful towards their iniquities and... <laughs> Boy, I need mercy <laughs> for my iniquities. And it doesn't stop there. It says, I will remember their sins no more. The four in the sentence, it tells us that the basis for the promises, the basis for having a new heart and knowing God is that He will be merciful towards those in this new covenant. He'll remember our sins no more. You see, God in His grace, He's determined to forgive us completely and fully if we're trusting in, in Jesus because of His once and for all sacrifice. And part of the wonder of the new covenant that we're to be reminded of because we so easily forget. It's that God is merciful to us, even in our iniquities. He's merciful towards those of us who follow Jesus Christ as our high priest. And God says something astounding. See, God can't ever forget anything. God knows everything, and if He could forget anything, He wouldn't be God. He would no longer remain all-knowing. But here's the thing. He chooses to remember our sins no more. Imagine that. God's not only merciful towards your iniquities, He actually chooses to remember your sins no more. I, I was thinking about how some families in the church, and some, maybe some of you, and 
Some families can be torn apart and ravaged by an ongoing remembrance of sins and an ongoing choosing to not forgive and to hold the other party responsible. Maybe you've done that in the past as well, wanting somebody to pay, remembering their sins. Some families punish each other because of past sins and don't ever let each other forget their sins. But here's the good news. We're in a different family. We're in now God's family. And He says He will never remember our sins. You never have to wonder, does God, what does God think of me? Does He, He knows about all your sins and He chooses to not remember any of them. I love a quote by a guy named P.R. Williamson. I think we have it for you. It says, sin, listen to this, sin cannot, sin cannot imperil the divine human relationships guaranteed by this new covenant. Sin cannot imperil, sin cannot threaten the divine human relationships that are guaranteed by this new covenant in the blood of Christ. Here's what he says, for sin will not be brought into account. That's good news! Your sin will never be brought into account. God will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. This covenant is radically new. He'll never punish our sins against Him. He's already punished all of our sins against Him in Jesus once for all. He's never going to hold our sins against us or remind us of our, of our sins. He's never going to accuse us or be bitter or resentful against us. He's never going to remember our sins. He... Oh, church, that's good news. Look down at verse 13. It's saying the old covenant's obsolete. Why are we hoping something that's obsolete? Why are we still hoping, trying to keep God's laws on our own? You can drop all the false pretenses of trying to pretend to be better than who you, who you really are. You can be real with fellow Christians and community. Why? Because He doesn't remember your sins and, and He knows them all. You can drop every false pretense. You can, you can be real with other Christians too. You have to put confidence in what people think of you. You can put confidence in the fact that Jesus is, Jesus' righteousness is credited to you. Why would we hope in something obsolete? It's like hanging on to some ancient technology hoping one day it's going to be used again, you know? I, uh, I had a friend who held on to this Betamax. You ever remember Betamax back in the days? This is from people born 19, prior to 1980. Anybody after 1980 probably doesn't remember it. But this, is, this technology, it was like videotapes, but it was a little different. They were smaller and different, and everybody thought they were better. And I had this friend who kept hanging on to Betamax saying, this is going to win out, man. It never won out. It was an outdated technology. And we progressed from there to VHS and to 3D Blu-ray players. Um, it'd be silly to still hang on to your old Betamax system thinking, I think this is going to be cool. One day this is going to work. It's going to pump back. Um, by, by saying that the old covenant is old and ready to vanish, it's, it's saying the old, old covenant's passed away. Why would you hang on to it anymore? It's useless. It doesn't do what you want it to do. It can never, could never do it. It's, it's like the expiration date's old, it's gone. It's like milk that was once good, but now it's past its expiration date. It's rotten. Why would you still drink of it trying to receive some kind of benefit from it and be refreshed? It would be silly. It would be gross, too. I don't want to drink chunky milk. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> we, we have a new and better covenant that's much more excellent than the old covenant. 
the author of Hebrews is saying, why in the world would you want to hang on to something old when not only is obsolete, it's ready to vanish? And, and here's, the, here's the reality, though. When the book of Hebrews was written, it was ready to vanish away, but in 70 AD, something happened. Between 67 and 70 AD, the people of Israel rebelled against Roman rule, and the Romans came in. They smacked them down in 67, and then in 70 they came in, and they wiped out the temple and burned it to the ground. Why? Why did God let that happen? Because the old covenant was already gone. And ever since 70 AD, there's been no way, if you're a Jew or Hebrew, there's been no way that you could ever even hope remotely for any kind of atonement or forgiveness. Why? Because the old covenant was completely obsolete, has been completely done away with. There's never been a sacrifice since. There's been no high priestly system, no, no atonement there. Why? Because God was saying, look, I'm going to wipe out the temple through the Romans because I don't want you ever to have any questions in your mind that the Old Covenant could never suffice. And it's sad that some still hope in that Old Covenant, but we don't have a sad hope. We have a glad hope, not in a shadow, but in the real thing. And we can come into the real presence of God, not a priest. We no longer need somebody else to serve as a mediator because Jesus is the ultimate mediator and He calls us His priests. And we can come in to the presence of God directly. This is a new and better covenant that He mediates. So we start this Advent system, this, this Advent season over the next month. We're going to look forward to celebrating the birth of our great high priest. Let's... Remember, we have a son. We don't need to trust in any mere shadows. No earthly system is going to satisfy. No earthly thing is going to bring us peace or joy or happiness. But Jesus has brought us true peace, true joy, true happiness. It can't be taken away. Even if everything you have is taken away and your home's foreclosed on and you lose your job and you yourself fail in every way. You have a new and better covenant that can never be taken away because God says He's the one who does it. He's the one who gives you a new heart. And, and those He holds in His hand will never be taken from His hand. Our sins are remembered no more and we can know God. What greater gift could we ever want? Let's pray. Father, thank You. I pray, God, that we would remember... And we're so prone to forget. We're so prone to trust in shadows. We're so prone to look to other things. We're so prone to forget what we have, the provision we have in you. Jesus, we're so prone to forget who you are, where you are, and what you've brought us. But God, I pray that you would seal these truths in our hearts. Because Lord, you're the one who's given us a new heart and an ability to know you. And I pray that we would come new into your presence receive your mercy and grace fresh hope and I pray that seeing Jesus would give us hope in, in your promises in your name we pray Amen